If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. My name is Dave Musgrove and I'm the editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, features editor. Coming up in this podcast... I don't know what's happening. Things in Greece are more confused than ever before. I give up. Maybe someone else will come along and be able to sort out this mess. Michael Scott on 4th century Greece. So I don't think that it's fair really to blame Moctezuma for the Spanish Empire, which is what's often done. That was Caroline dodds Pennock on the Aztec ruler Moctezuma. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. The magazine is published monthly and will tell you how to get hold of a copy later. And whether or not you buy the magazine, there's lots of free historical content to enjoy on our website. If you haven't visited it yet, do take a look. There are special features to read plus our guide to history on TV, as well as book reviews, an index to the magazine, a weekly quiz and a forum where you can talk history. It's all at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Do take a look at that. Now, the 5th century BC is the golden age of ancient Greece, right? Well, it's the time of the building of the Parthenon and the rise of democracy, and classicists have long admired it. But... As Cambridge scholar Michael Scott has outlined in a feature in the October issue of the magazine and in a new book, the 4th century BC deserves to be dragged up the ladder of historical reputation and to be viewed as equally, if not more important, than its illustrious predecessor. I interviewed Michael to find out why he holds this view. Michael, you've written a feature for the magazine in our October issue. It's based on your new book, From Democrats to Kings. And the basic argument you're pursuing in the feature is that the 4th century BC is basically the forgotten century of classical history, overshadowed by its more famous predecessor, the 5th century. So to kick off, can you just give us an idea of why the 5th century has been lauded so much by classical scholars? 
Well, it's quite easy to understand in some ways. The 5th century produced some extraordinary buildings like the Parthenon, which is the most visible building in Greece still to this day. It sums up the entire ancient Greek world. It's the national symbol. And that is a 5th century building. You can't deny also that the 5th century had some amazing events, some amazing people and some amazing historical moments which did define the ancient world and which continue to define us today, like the invention of democracy in ancient Athens. But what's happened as a result is that we've got fixated on the 5th century and we've forgotten about what came after that. And what came after that was actually a period of incredibly turbulent change, the 4th century, in which even more important things in some ways were discussed, debated, decided, identified, discovered. And it's that period, the 4th century, which as one historian has already called it, it's the sickly cousin of the 5th century. We need to rehabilitate that sickly cousin and put the 4th century back on par with it, the 5th century predecessor. So let's examine the sickly cousin. Can you take us back to the start of the 4th century and just give us a very brief overview of what's going on in the classical world at the time? What's the situation? I mean, I think the first thing is really important to say that the ancients wouldn't have stood there at the end of the fifth century and gone my god it's a whole new century you know it's a whole new world starting turning the page that's the benefit of hindsight right? history does that periodizes everything but it clearly was a momentous moment at the end of the century 404 bc and athens is sitting there defeated at the end of a 30-year war the peloponnesian war in which it's gone from being the king of greece to the pauper on the street it's absolutely defeated. It's shamed into a peace deal by the Spartans in which Athens has to pull down its own city walls, you know, the most embarrassing thing for an ancient city ever to have to do. And so the century ends, the fifth century ends with this cataclysmic change of power. And the fourth century then opens with the ancient world trying to understand what happens next. Is Sparta, the new king of Greece, going to step into the shoes of Athens? Is it going to follow a very different path? And all the time, those cities in Greece are worrying about what the other empire of the ancient world, the Persian Empire, just across the Aegean Sea, is going to make of all this. So the fourth century starts as a period of real turbulence and uncertainty when no one knows what's going to happen next, how are events going to play out. Okay. Where does democracy stand in all this then with the defeat of Athens? What's happened to democracy? Well, the weird thing about Athenian democracy at the end of the 5th century, beginning of the 4th century, is that it too has its own revolution. And it's not. The end of democracy is not spelled out in the peace deal. It's not enforced on Athens by the Spartans. The Spartans don't say you must get rid of democracy. Athens actually decides to vote democratically democracy out of existence within its own city. They go, look, democracy obviously hasn't worked. We've lost this war. We need something new. And with a bit of pushing and nudging from Sparta, it has to be said, they decide to give power in the city to a bunch of 30 people, 30 tyrants, as they later become known, who could lead Athens out of its present trouble. Within a year, that experiment has shown to be a complete failure. And a revolution takes place in Athens, where the people take back control in a series of bloody battles within the streets. And by the beginning of the fourth century, democracy is back up and running in perhaps an even more ardent form than ever before. The Athenian citizens meet in the Agora in the central marketplace, and they all swear an oath that they will kill by any means possible anyone who tries in the future to overthrow their democracy. And then after that, we've got the problem with the fourth century, and you mentioned this in your feature with the fact that we haven't got Athens in clear control of the situation. We haven't got an obvious power source. So it's it's sort of harder for us to really deal with this. It's a muddled and slightly confused century. So is that why we've struggled in the past to admire and come to terms with it? 
Yeah, I think that's very much the case. Constantly throughout the fourth century, the city that has just a bit more power is trying to exercise control. It's constantly changing. No one has that ability to really stamp their label onto Greece. And so you have different Greek cities, you have the Persian king, and increasingly you have other entities like the Sicilian kings who are trying to have a hand in what's happening in Greece as well. So that is a main problem. And that's compounded by the way the ancient historians have written about this period. The historian of the fourth century, a man called Xenophon, gives up in 362 BC after recounting a particular battle, the Battle of Mantinea, and he simply ends his account by going, I don't know what's happening. Greece, things in Greece are more confused than ever before. I give up. Maybe someone else will come along and be able to, you know, sort out this mess and, and write it better. And there are other people like the political commentator Isocrates, who spends his entire life during the fourth century egging Athens on, saying, come on, you did this before in the fifth century. You can be better than this. You can rise to power again and stamp your authority onto Greece once more. And at the very end of his life, when he's about 98 years old, down at 338 BC, he finally realizes in one of his last speeches that Athens is never going to be able to do this again. And he transfers his allegiance to King Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, as the new hope for the person who can stamp their authority onto Greece and lead Greece forward once more. So you as a classical historian, you're trying to cut through this complication and, and to make it easier for us to understand. So can you give us an idea then of why you see the fourth century as this forgotten child? What are the key developments that come out of this period that we ought to know about? It's not so much about unravelling the difficulty and saying, aha, this is the person who was in charge, you know, we've sorted it, we're back to the same model. Actually, it's about saying, yes, things were much more complicated and we should get into that complication because we need to understand periods of world change and world turbulence just as much as we need to understand periods and when things are much clearer. Our example for today's world, we're in a period of intense change, turbulent globalisation, etc., etc. We're in exactly the same spot, perhaps, as the Greeks were in the 4th century BC. And so if we're going to get into the 4th century, century, we need to really embrace this turbulence. And it's not just that the fourth century was a period of political change, even though of course that was the case. It's also increasing globalization, world trade is constantly expanding, and at the same time individuals are trying to find their place within this world, to be able to get a handle on how they find themselves and work out a life for themselves in this world that's changing. And at the same time, because so many things are changing, the fourth century also becomes a period in which people are desperately trying to find things which are certain, which are fixed, which they can understand. And so it becomes a great period of discovery as well. The great philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, the great scientific discoveries and inventions. The law courts become an incredibly important feature in Athens during this period because everyone's trying to get a hold on what's going on around them. And also it becomes a great period of building and artistic, sculptural creation as well. Theatres, temples, sculptures. These people are pushing forward the boundaries of what is possible, of what is allowed, a lot of which comes as a response to this constant period of change and turbulence through which they're living. Taking us towards the end of your century then, and we've got a very different set of situations. We've got, instead of democracy, we've got authoritarian power, basically. So how have we moved from one area to the other, and how do we come out of the 4th century? It is extraordinary. In a single lifetime, in this guy, this political commentator, Isocrates' lifetime, the power balance in the Greek world does change from being one where individual cities are constantly scabbering with one another for power to a world in which Alexander the Great is king of Macedon. He has an empire which stretches throughout the whole of Greece and as far east as the shores of India. It's a completely different world. And 
you know, what sums up for me that world change better than anything else is that Athens, the city that is the home and inventor of democracy, by the end of the fourth century, accepts a king as its ruler and makes him a living god, right? You know, that's how much this world has changed in just a hundred years in such a short period of time. What happens after this? Well, Alexander the Great, as king, sets the precedent. After his death, he has no obvious successor, so his generals divide up his empire, they make themselves into kings, they establish their own dynasties, and the ancient world, in fact, not just the Greek world, the ancient world, is divided up into these dynasties, and that political map, as it were, will last for the next 300 years until the Roman Empire comes in to turn it all up on its head once again. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating insight into the 4th century. Now, if I was in Greece and I was wandering around on holiday and I was interested in finding out the 4th century, is there one place that you'd recommend I went to to try and get a taste of what was going on there? Is there anywhere that survives would give me an idea? Absolutely. If I had my choice, I'd send you to two places. The first is in Athens. And it's not the Agora or the Acropolis, the kind of main places that the tourists go to. It's actually to go to the Keramikos, the graveyard of ancient Athens. And the graveyard exists on the city boundaries. In fact, it was just outside the city walls. And when you were coming to Athens, in fact, you had to walk through the graveyard of the city to get in through the main gate to get into the city. So a very different setup to what we're used to today. You have to face the dead of Athens before you can face the living. And in that graveyard today, if you go to the ancient site, you see some of the gravestones still set up facing the road that you would have to walk through. And those gravestones relate back to this period of turbulent change to the fourth century. So you can see the people of Athens who died during this period of turbulent change and how they wanted themselves to be remembered. The other place I would send you to is not very much further north in Boeotia, which is the sort of middle part of mainland Greece, near where the city, ancient city of Thebes once stood. Thebes is now a very much forgotten place, but it needs to be put back on the map. And just outside of Thebes is a place called Chironea, which was a battlefield. And that is where Philip of Maston, King Philip of Maston, came down from the north with his troops and took on the forces of Greece, and particularly the forces of Athens, in a final battle for the control of Greece, if you like, and that changeover of political leadership. And at Chironea today, there is the grave of 300 Theban warriors who fought to the death against Philip. And over the top of their graves and their bodies, the skeletons have been discovered and analysed. Over the top of that grave is a stone lion that was put up by Philip of Macedon to signify his victory. And that lion still stands there today. And I challenge anyone who goes there not to look at the way that lion has been sculpted, the power of the muscles of the animal and the, the sheer look of determination on its face and not to be moved in a way by the power and the changes that were overcome in Greece in that period. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can read Michael Scott's feature on the subject in the October issue of BBC History magazine, and his book, From Democrats to Kings, is published by Icon right now.
Now, before we go to our second interview, here's what you can find in the October issue of the magazine. Our cover feature is on Henry V, and inside we find out why the heroic victor of Agincourt was in reality a brutal killer. We've also got features on medieval leprosy, how people protected their homes from witches in the 17th century, where to visit places connected with the English Reformation, plus an interview with Andrew Marr on his new venture, The Making of Modern Britain, which is on BBC Two this month. But now, on to our second interview. Recently, the British Museum launched a major exhibition about the Aztec ruler Moctezuma II. Moctezuma was the leader of the Aztecs when the Spanish conquistadors arrived in present-day Mexico in 1519. He was unable to keep them at bay and has since gone down in history as a weak ruler who surrendered his empire without a fight. But is this really fair? Historian Caroline Dodds-Pennock has written a reassessment of Moctezuma for our latest issue and I spoke to her recently about Moctezuma's dealings with the Spanish and the eventual conquest of Mexico. What do we know about the state of the Aztec Empire when the Spanish conquistadors first arrived? Well, it's a little bit difficult to kind of come to a conclusive assessment of the empire because all the sources we have come from the Spanish perspective and of course they're trying to create a very particular perspective of the empire at the time they arrive. The first thing we should probably say is that it's not really an empire. The Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan has a network of 300 subjects and allied cities, or about 300, which is obviously a huge reach, but not all of those are literally subjugated. Some of them have made alliances, some of them have been subjugated by force, some of them pay tribute, but it's certainly a very wide reach they have, and it reaches through central Mexico and down into parts of what we would think of towards the Caribbean. At the time Cortes arrives, it's at the largest extent that it has been in its history. And so actually, there are those that would argue that it's beginning to get a little bit stretched in terms of the influence that it can exert over the subject peoples. And that's something that Cortes exploits when he arrives, because there's some discontent amongst a number of the allied and subjugated cities. But was it quite an advanced civilization at this point? I would certainly argue that it was. There are those that would say because it doesn't have a form of alphabetic writing, for example, that it must be considered relatively unsophisticated. But in some ways, it compares very, very favourably to early modern European society at the time, to the contemporaneous Spanish civilization that they're meeting. It's much more equal in terms of gender relationships that you would think of. It's highly organised. The streets are very clean. The Spanish are very impressed by the administrative, political, trading organisation they encounter. And it does have very sophisticated record-keeping. It's simply a visual form of writing. And so it's actually a highly sophisticated in terms of its organisation and also of the structure of both government and society. That said, they do practice human sacrifice very widely. And there are a lot of people who would say that that kind of religious practice you can't sit with a civilised society. So perhaps the question is how far it's civilised versus sophisticated, if that makes sense. And the man in charge at this point in time was Moctezuma II. What kind of a ruler was he? Again, he in particular is difficult to get a perspective of because the Spanish want to create a particular picture of him and so do the Aztecs after the conquest. But we know that he has expanded 
the empire beyond the bounds that it's had before. He's a really a very experienced general. He's an experienced man. He is a very dignified figure, as far as we can tell from all of the sources, highly educated, as are all of the Aztec nobility. Something very distinctive about his rule, though, is the way that he goes about stratifying society. So he increases the distinction between nobles and commoners to a far greater extent than has happened in the past. He insists that only nobles serve him in his palace, for example, that commoners can't come into his presence. He interacts much less directly with the nobles than has happened before. And it seems that this is partly down to his personality and partly down to a desire to create a social structure that will enable them to support this huge empire by rewarding nobles much more directly, by creating systems of reward and systems of hierarchy that uh, enable him to perpetuate this enormous authority structure. When the Spanish arrived, how did Moctezuma attempt to deal with them? You're going to hate me for saying again that depends whose perspective we look at, because, of course, this is the most controversial issue. Um, if you take the Spanish perspective, then he welcomed them in. He presented himself as a very great ruler, which, in fact, he was, but he willingly submitted his empire to an even greater ruler as he saw it, Charles V. Now, this obviously is very much a legalistic interpretation designed to justify the Spanish conquest. But there are elements of it that are true. He certainly sends great gifts to the Spanish, but I would argue that those are intended to impress them, to awe them, and possibly as a form of tribute to get them to go away, rather than as the submission that the Spanish forces present it as. We know that he was not a completely submissive ruler, as has sometimes been presented to the Spanish, because the first thing he does when he hears they've arrived is to set scouts up to watch for them on the coast, to make sure he knows exactly what they're doing. He constantly does try and persuade them away from coming to the capital city, which turns out to be an error in retrospect, because he doesn't deal with them directly, he tries to persuade them away, and he sends magicians, sorcerers, as we would see them to try and deter them to cast spells to keep them away from the city. He eventually does invite them in, however, and that's been seen as a great tactical error because, of course, it opens the city up to military attack. But he seems to be trying to impress them with his greatness. He has no real expectation that these people will come in and then seize him within the city, which is what happens eventually. So he tries to negotiate with them, I suppose, is the best description. He's quite tactically astute about it. But perhaps those tactics don't turn out to be as wise as he thinks they are. Why do you think he didn't engage them in battle? I think there are probably two explanations. The most compelling being that he didn't think it was necessary at the time. He does, of course, engage them, or the Aztecs engage the Spanish very directly in battle later on. But they're really quite a small number of people in the first instance, less than a thousand this is a man who rules over a network of cities that encompasses millions of individuals. There's no real reason that he should have perceived them as a particular threat when they first land. He isn't aware of the disease that's going to strike his people, of the technological advantages they possess, or of course of his determination to overthrow his empire. He's used to operating in a political system where you usually say to someone, if you don't submit to us, then we're going to conquer you. And they're also used to working in a system where you don't tend to try and take people over. You make them submit to your authority and then you leave them mostly with their own rulers in place, for example. So 
he's working within a very different structure and there's no real reason that he should have felt the need to conquer them in the first instance. The second is perhaps that he was hesitant to engage them. There is some suggestion, not that he believed they were gods after the very initial encounter, but perhaps that he is somewhat awed by them. He certainly wouldn't have understood a lot of the technology. He does seem to have been very impressed by Cortez on a personal level, and they do intimidate him personally when they come into the city. They seize him as far as we can tell at some stage and use him as a puppet ruler. So there are personal hesitations there, but it simply isn't the case that he's this vacillating coward who lays down his empire at their feet. I would think the main reason why he doesn't challenge them in battle to begin with is that he doesn't think he needs to. So how are this small number of Spaniards able to overcome him then? Well, I should say, first of all, that although it is a relatively small number of Spaniards, they have a huge number of indigenous allies. Very early on, Cortes realises that there are divisions within the empire. And so he manages, partly by force, partly by persuasion, to convince a number of other groups to come over to his side, most famously the Tlaxcalans, who are bitter enemies of the Aztecs. Now, he is supported by tens of thousands of indigenous allies when he besieges the city of Tenochtitlan. So to say that this small group of Spanish is conquering this vast empire is hardly true. I think the most important part of that is certainly the indigenous allies. So he does, of course, have technology, for example, that enables the Spanish to kill in much larger numbers than the indigenous allies can. And they have certain, I suppose, biological advantages in that pretty soon after the Spanish arrive, many of the indigenous people, their allies, and the Aztecs start dropping like flies from the disease that's been brought from Spain. So the siege of Tenochtitlan, the majority of people, it's possible to speculate, weren't actually killed as a result of warfare, but as a result of the disease that swept through the city during the siege. It's believed probably to be smallpox. What happened to Moctezuma in the end? Well, that's another one of those things, depending on who you believe. He dies long before the city actually falls to the Spanish. The Spanish are surrounded in the city in 1520, and it's said that Moctezuma goes up on a roof to plead with his people to obey him, because at this point the city is in open rebellion. Now, if you believe the Spanish accounts, the Aztecs throw rocks at him and he is effectively stoned to death. If you believe indigenous accounts, they say the Spanish murdered him after this incident because he wasn't of any use to them anymore. But certainly he dies during one of the relatively early pitched battles in the city of Tenochtitlan and is replaced actually before his death as ruler by two successors who come to be regarded as far greater defenders of the Aztec people than Moctezuma himself. But even these successors can't stop the Spanish eventually taking over? No, they certainly can't. The first one dies, I should say, very quickly as smallpox, and then Cuauhtémoc tries very hard to fight, I guess, what you call a total war against the Spanish, with no possibility of surrender, but he isn't able to defeat the Spanish either. People often ask whether the Spanish conquest was inevitable. Would it always have happened? Because Moctezuma is presented as this coward who gave away his society almost. And I think it is important to say that in the long run, I don't think anybody could have stopped the Spanish conquest. I think if Moctezuma had acted very early and had marshaled his military forces against the Spanish, then he could have certainly thrown the conquistadors and Cortes out of Mexico very, very quickly. He simply outnumbered them 
by millions to a couple of hundred. But there's no good reason to think that he should have done that. He had no reason to believe he should do that. And the Spanish were always going to come back once the disease made its way into Central America. There was nothing going to stop the downfall of the people, the decline of the population. And so I don't think that it's fair really to blame Moctezuma for the Spanish Empire, which is what's often done. People essentially scapegoat him for everything happening. But what happens to indigenous communities throughout the Americas and then later in Asia and in Africa shows that these European empires are a much bigger issue and you can't really blame it on the one man. That was Caroline Dodds-Pennock, who is the author of Bonds of Blood, Gender, Life Cycle and Sacrifice in Aztec Culture, published by Palgrave Macmillan. The British Museum exhibition Moctezuma is running until the 24th of January next year. You can find out more about it at www.britishmuseum.org. And, as I mentioned before, you can read more on Moctezuma in our latest issue. You can read features from both Caroline Dodds-Pennock and Michael Scott in October's BBC History magazine on sale right now. Even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. The magazine is published each month and we have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details for this are on our website, which is www.bbchistorymagazine.com. That's it. Thanks once again for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it and that you keep an eye out for our next podcast, which will be released in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, as Rob suggested, do take a look at our website. It's full of interesting historical matter, which I'm sure will keep you entertained. <laughs>